Well, good afternoon, everyone. Great to be back with everyone uh, this morning, this afternoon. How's that for a force of habit, right? Uh, Thankful I have my son with me here uh, this morning. Um, My uh, wife and uh, one of my daughters are on their way down to uh, North Carolina. She's going down there. My daughter's going down to camp for a couple weeks, so they're on their way. Uh, down there, and uh, thankful we were able to be over here uh, with everyone uh, this afternoon. So I want to, uh, Lord willing, over the next few weeks, start through a series in the book of First Thessalonians, but we're actually going to look at a few different texts in the book of Acts as a preparation or prelude to get into uh, the text in First Thessalonians. Um, and so this morning, how's that? This afternoon, <laughs> we'll be here so long, it's going to feel like you've been here all day, right? Uh, this afternoon, uh, I want to take a look at really introducing this uh, letter. And before we start to take time to go kind of verse by verse or section by section, really, uh, this, mor- this afternoon, I want to just take some time to introduce the book and look at just the first verse. So there's going to be a lot of introductory material uh, that we'll uh, kind of take a look at and, and we'll, go, uh, we'll go through things this way. So uh, this, is, this is how I want to start off things, right? How well do you remember some things? How well do you remember things? How many of you have been on this boat, and if you know the name of uh, one of these boats, go ahead and uh, say it out loud. What's the name of these boats? Yeah, Boblo boats. Does anyone know when when, uh, the Boblo boats started running, when Boblo Island opened? It was the year year before Jim Waring was born. (laughs) Let me see if I get this right. Yeah, 1898. (laughs) Jim, that's totally unfair. That's I was two years off, that's right, fair enough. Uh, started in, uh, in uh, 18, 1898, closed in 1993. And the, the picture you see there on the left is what it looked like in its glory. And the picture on the right there is really how it is today. Um, one of them actually burned, uh, tragically, in a, in a fire. Uh, and th- this, is, this is kind of what happens to us frequently. How well do you remember things? I remember... As a kid, uh, going to a preschool, it was in our church in, in uh, New Jersey where, uh, where I'm from, and I can remember just, man, I loved going there. It was this cool white building that we would go into. It seemed larger than life. I knew where the snack room was. That was the most important room, right? I knew where we would go get the snack. I knew where the certain toys were, and there was always that one or two key toys that you wanted to get to first and beat out the other kids so you'd race to go right to that spot in his little cubby you knew right where to go I had great memories of that as a kid and then years later I went back as an adult and it was terrible it was terrible the thing had fallen apart that wasn't in use anymore and I remember just being so disappointed like ah oh, man this was just a childhood memory that uh, totally totally fell apart um, you know, but then there's other things in life that when you experience it and, and you kind of remember it, uh, when you go back, you hope and really wish it's going to be the same. In 1984, my uh, parents uh, took us to the Magic Kingdom, to Disney World, 1984. And there's a picture of me with my three brothers with our white tube socks pulled right up to our knees 
you know, the yellow, different color bands uh, on, on the top of those white tube socks. They were fantastic. We did not know we looked like little dorks, but we all were there lined up with our shirts on. Tommy, Danny, Jimmy, Robbie. That was all of us lined up. Boom. Magical place. Not too many years ago, a number of years ago, we took our kids back there to our kids to Disney World. And sure enough, it was the exact same magical place. It was like nothing had changed. Not a stitch out of place. So, you know, as we go through life and we experience different things, we, we may have some kind of a memory of it. And, you know, hopefully when we go back and see it again, uh, we're excited about it. But maybe we're afraid to go back and see it, right? Maybe there's some apprehension or maybe we go back and see it and we're disappointed. Uh, you know, sometimes we can face uh, all of these different uh, challenges here. I'm going to give this another try here. I'm hitting down and... Maybe we can go one slide forward there. Someone can give me a hand in the back. If not, there we go. That's, I think that'll work. Background. We're going to talk a little bit about what was happening at the church in Thessalonica. Now, why do I start off with, you know, talking about returning to some place later? Kind of setting up for this series that we want to go through here in the book of 1 Thessalonians. All of us, like I said, we can relate in some way, shape, or form to having gone somewhere, returning sometime later, and, and seeing what was happening there. And, and I believe this is exactly what, what a few of the men who had been to Thessalonica were thinking, particularly the author of this letter, the Apostle Paul. So this is likely what Paul, Silas, and even Timothy were concerned about with the church at the Thessalonica. And I think there's uh, a few different reasons for this. This letter, written by Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, and we'll read the first verse uh, from 1 Thessalonians here in, in a few minutes, um, it was really connected to his second missionary journey. And so what I want to do, and I clearly need to get my prescription adjusted, I'm going to just step down here and see what, see what you guys are looking at, because I think it might be helpful if we can all be reading the same thing. Yeah, we want to talk a little bit about when the gospel first came to the city. Acts 15, 16, and 17 here, we have a couple of different things. And I apologize. Macedonian calls in Acts 16. I'll mention that in just a second here. And, uh, you know, one of the things we want to make sure we understand is a little bit about the history. What was happening here? Because I think when we understand, and I don't need to say too much about this to this assembly of believers, when we understand a little bit about where we have come from and what we have experienced, that certainly gives us a different perspective of how we understand the gospel and how we want to proceed with the gospel in the ministry to which God has called us. Same thing is definitely true in this letter that Paul wrote to the believers at Thessalonica. So during Paul's second missionary journey... He had been traveling around, and in just a few moments here, I'll put a map up here to kind of give us a little perspective of where in the world we're talking about. As he was traveling on this call, he received in Acts chapter 16 what is commonly referred to as the Macedonian call. Listen as I read from Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. Paul's traveling around here with his fellow uh, companions, Paul and Silas particularly, when they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, in just a moment, I'll show you kind of where they were traveling around, and we'll zero in on, on, on where they were. But as they were moving throughout here, they uh, crossed over into this region known as Macedonia. Then in Acts chapter 16, uh, we know that they made their way down to Philippi, where we had the start of what churches continue to do today with Singspirations, right? They got uh, imprisoned, they uh, sang, and of course, during that time, uh, they were able to share the gospel with a Philippian jailer, and we know about the conversion of this Philippian jailer. And so, uh, they continued on their way and eventually made their way down to Thessalonica. Acts 17 in verse 1 says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis uh, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So let's uh, try and take another slide forward here, if we can. Now, we pray for the slide to move forward one. It will? It did? It did? Aha, what was the city like and where was it located? This particular city, located right on the coast of the Aegean Sea. Thank you for telling me what's going on behind me. That's super helpful. This particular uh, city, when they arrived there to preach the gospel, they, they did not enter into a religious vacuum. It was not that there was no religion of any kind that was happening in the city. People of Thessalonica worshipped many deities. Uh, there was many gods that were present there. And so the gospel proclamation really became, for the Apostle Paul, as well as for Silas, who was with them there, became a really stark call to abandon the worship of images and to abandon the worship of, of false gods. You know, I think sometimes when we read through the New Testament, we need to recognize that the worship of false gods is something that we face today. It's something that we, as we interact with people, we need to recognize they too are worshiping false gods. It may be the false god in another formal religious organization, be it some kind of a church that teaches false teaching. It might be that they are not connected with any particular kind of a church or religion, but they're pursuing their own self-interest, right? Their own spirituality, their own quote-unquote religion. They're pursuing some other form of happiness. They're, performing, they're, they're pursuing some other spiritual journey that they find themselves on. And the reality is when we share the gospel... It's going to serve as a stark contrast to what it is that people are pursuing. Certainly, when we present the gospel, we want to be kind in how we present it. We want to be clear in how we present it. But we have to recognize that for many people, it's going to come as a total disconnect from the path that they're pursuing, particularly when they begin to understand more about the life and ministry of Christ that we would share with them and they understand the gospel. So, the Thessalonians were sons and daughters, a little bit more about the region of uh, Thessalonica there and the town there. The Thessalonians were the sons and daughters of the greatest empire ever known in human history. 
The Macedonian kingdom was of Alexander III, simply known as Alexander the Great. This uh, port city located on the Aegean Sea. Thessalonica is really on this eastern coast of Macedonia. And the reason why I'm pointing this out here, and let's go ahead and move forward now to the next slide. Uh, This is the entire kind of region here. And I'm going to, in just a moment, we'll zoom in here for a second. On the, uh, let's see if I can get this one to work here, yeah. Over here is where they'd kind of started on their second missionary journey. This is over here in Jerusalem, right? They'd made their way up to Antioch and were traveling around. When they were over here in Troas, right here in the middle, this is where Acts 16, they got this Macedonian call. Hey, come over here and help us. They perceived and correctly understood that God was calling them to go over across from Troas down into this region. You can see some of these cities all along down in here, all the way to Thessalonica, which is located right about in here. Why is this region so interesting? Well, it's, besides it being a port city, it actually serves, uh, it served right along a significant intersection for commerce, both north and west as well, as, north and south as well as east and west. All kinds of trade routes came through there and the prosperity of the city was well known. Let's go forward one more slide as well so we can kind of get a little bit closer look here of what we're talking about. Freshly taken from the back flyleaf of some Pew Bible. This is a map that uh, I think will give us a, uh, a little bit better picture of where we're kind of talking about uh, here in the world. As we look to understand a little bit more about what the people are like, I think it will give us a little bit better picture of what it is that they had faced. This uh, region uh, really had a lot of prosperity to it, a lot of natural resources as well. Again, I'm trying to give us a little bit of background here about the type of place where this was happening. When we read our Bibles, we shouldn't just read it as something that happened in a, in a, with no context to it. These were people who lived their lives day to day just like we do. They're engaged in business, they're engaged in work, they do all the things. Recently, my wife and I had the privilege to be able to tour through the city of Pompeii. And it is fascinating to see the way that they conducted their lives. Very different than how we do it today, but it gave me a, a stark reminder that these are people who had shops and they lived right next to their shops and they would sell their goods and there were people who were farmers and there were people who engaged in commerce and business day to day, which is exactly the same thing we do. And they're faced with the same temptations, the same struggles, the same reality. So when these things were occurring, let's, let's not make it so far distant in the past, although it was many centuries ago, that it's not connected to reality or the, str- the struggles that we might face today. The relevance of the scriptures today is just as strong as it was in the time in which it was written. So I want us to see uh, a little bit of that. Let's go forward one more slide. As we're continuing to look at a little bit of the background of the city here all throughout this time, we want to answer a few questions. What were the people like? We want to see what some of the responses were to the gospel as they arrived in the city there. And then we'll see how things continue to unfold from that point. So what were the people like? In Acts, Luke mentions that there were many prominent or noble women who were converted. We see this all throughout Acts 17, uh, particularly in verse number four. We also recognize that there was a, a guy by the name of Jason 
who apparently was sufficiently wealthy enough to be able to offer hospitality to the men who were traveling through, right? This was a guy who had a large enough home. Uh, he was recognized in the community by many people as having had, you know, some kind of uh, prominence. He seemed to really be uh, someone who also was a benefactor to the Christian community. In other words, he was someone who was contributing to the needs of the saints there as well as in the surrounding region. Other members of the church were also benefactors of the work and ministry that this gentleman did within the church. And this is going to be an important fun fact for us as we look through this. I want us to recognize that with, even within a church, you have people who teach the gospel, you have people who preach the gospel, and you have people who serve the needs for the effective communication of the gospel. There are people who are serving right now in a children's church ministry, helping to have those of you who have children understand the truth of the gospel. My own family has been a beneficiary of that throughout all the years that we have been connected to a church. There are people who serve the church right now to make sure that the slides are moving forward, right? That you can hear me with a microphone. Uh, there are people who are serving in all kinds of ways all the time. There is no greater or lesser job. We are all servants and serving is what we do. And I think when we recognize the fact that within the church, there are people who are engaged in activity for the cause of the gospel, this is what contributes to the overall effectiveness of the ministry. Uh, there was one church that um, uh, our, our family was a part of in the Boston area with a lady who served in the church there uh, who was not uh, a particularly gifted um, communicator, right? She would not have been someone that you would put up in front of a large class to teach. Uh, she's not someone that would be, um, let's just say, uh, hyper-introverted, right? Uh, not, not even like slightly introverted. I mean like really introverted, really, really quiet. Um, if there was a church mouse, the church mouse would be afraid of this part, right? Because just so quiet, so reserved. We had seen her engaged with different people within the church family, and uh, after a while, there was a particular couple that we were talking with, and we asked them how they came to be a part of the church family here, and they pointed to that woman. They said, she was the one who befriended us, who invited us, and who sat with us and cared for us and prayed for us, and that's why we're here. So it just reminds, every time I read through these things and I, let's just not read through the book of Acts too, too quickly, right? Let's not just assume we know all the background of a letter because we, we've heard all these things so many times before. There was a vibrant church family that was at work here. And what's fascinating is they were going through a time, I'm getting a little over my skis here, they were going, there was a time where they were without someone who was dominantly there to lead them, but yet they continued to serve effectively and serve well. And I praise God for the work that I hear about what God is doing through the people here at Redemption Bible Church. As you continue to serve one another, as you continue to serve the community, be encouraged and strengthened in your faith. That's exactly what was happening here at the time when these men came through to share and see the gospel grow. So this is what was happening. This is who the people were and what they were like. In the larger community, uh, there were those who needed support from the Christian community, not the majority, 
Obviously, the church at Thessalonica had the power to support it themselves, right? They also served other needy Christian communities throughout Macedonia. We'll see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Lord willing, uh, if we're able to spend time going through each of these different chapters to study this. So what was the response to Paul's preaching of the gospel? What was Paul's response to the preaching of the gospel? How did people respond when they heard it? Acts chapter 17 mentions that when Paul and Silas came, they followed their typical pattern, their tradition of what they would do when they arrive in a city. Where, where would Paul go to? Say a synagogue. He would go to the synagogue first. You know, when Paul wrote to the church at Rome, he mentioned that he was coming there to preach the gospel of God to who first? The Jew first, and then also to the Greek. So he would come to the, to, to the synagogue, and he spent a few days there, and he began to teach, and he began to preach through the gospel. And uh, what's interesting is there was a mixed response. Some were persuaded, Acts 17 and verse 4. Only a few Jews were persuaded. Jews are not really even referred to in this first letter of Thessalonians, mostly Gentiles. Acts 17 informs us that there was a number of large, uh, there was a large number of God-fearing Greeks and many prominent women who were persuaded. But there were some who wanted them gone. There were some who were not so happy about the message that they were bringing in there. So what happened is they preached. Well, enough people who left the synagogue provoked such a strong reaction among the Jews. They were not persuaded by it. Perhaps they were filled with envy due to the loss of some people leaving, or they were afraid of losing influence within the community. So some of the Jews rounded up, quote, some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Boy, how's that for a welcome? Glad you're here. Uh, we're going to get some of, our, some of our friends, and we're going to start to create a real problem. It's interesting that in these particular times in human history, in the marketplace, which was the commonplace where people would come and gather and they would, they would hang out and they would conduct business, there were people who apparently were not what you'd call uh, the finer citizens of the community, right? And they were, just, they were just ready. They were just waiting for someone to pick a fight with them or, you know, a fight was going to happen, fine, we'll join in. And that's pretty much what, what happened here. They went and gathered a bunch of people together. These bad characters who hung around the Central Market region, their presence was certainly one that they just drew them in. So the mob caused such a disturbance that they went after the house of Jason. Now, you remember we just talked about Jason a few seconds ago, Right? Jason was the guy who was there supporting the people in the church. He had the missionaries housed there as they were coming through. He was known for supporting people in the larger community. And now these guys are going after that guy, Jason. They're going after him because he knew that this was the guy who was giving aid to these people who were coming in and preaching the gospel of God. When they had caused this, they wanted to take Paul and Silas ultimately before the officials of the city to see what was going on. 
So Acts 17, verses 6 and 7, and when they could not find them, they, meaning the mob, couldn't find Paul and Silas. When they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received him, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So clearly, my first thought here as I'm reading this out loud with with everyone here is that they, they knew the gospel, right? Well, amen. They knew of the King Jesus. And they did not like it. So they dragged him out there and they, they created this very, very serious charge. So from the very beginning, the people who were gathered in Thessalonica here were in conflict with the government of the city, literally the officials of the town, because they were trying to preach the gospel and these guys had caused such a problem. So what did they do next? What was happening in this newly formed church? It's a serious charge. Verse number 9 of Acts 17, which I'll read in a second, says they posted bond. The men helped Paul and Silas ultimately get out of town. He literally had to slip out the back. Um, Exit stage left rapidly, right? So listen to Acts 17. Starting in verse 8, and the people of the city and the authorities were disturbed when they had heard these things, and when they had taken money as security, literally posted bond, from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So now, this is just crazy, the uh, speed with which all these things happen. Paul and Silas show up. They're preaching the gospel. This mob gets frustrated with what's going on because the Jewish leaders did not, they saw them as a threat, not as a help to the community. So they literally went after them. Then they uh, help them slip out in the middle of the night. This uh, new church here was going through some difficulty. When Paul and Silas left, they were sent off to Athens, according to Acts 17. Paul and Silas and Timothy also uh, met up with them there. From there, Timothy eventually was sent back to Thessalonica to find out what had gone on and what had happened. Paul attempted to come back to Thessalonica, but was hindered from doing so because of some kind of opposition that he identifies ultimately as the work of Satan. So Paul is coming through there. He wasn't able to stay there. They sent him on to Athens through Berea, eventually made his way to Athens. And now Paul, Silas, and Timothy are hanging out in Athens saying, what about the believers in Thessalonica? What's going on there? We remember it was an amazing thing where they were seeking to defend the gospel. I'm making up that narrative, but you understand they were probably saying these things, right? I mean, we were there preaching the gospel. And then do you remember we got tossed? These guys, they, they came in. They tried to drag us out of the city. Jason had to pay bond. And then we slipped out in the middle of the night. What's going on? Is the gospel still effective in Thessalonica? It was a place that they had been. They wanted to go back, hoping that it was still going to be okay and that things were going to be fine. Paul tried to go, but it didn't work out. Obviously, he was hindered by Satan. So they ended, ultimately, ended up, they were able to send Timothy up there to do a visit and to find out what was going on. So a quick recap here. This church was very young. Paul and Silas barely with them, maybe a few weeks. Persecution surrounded their quick exit from the town. 
Apostles, of course, I think would have feared the worst. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us and brought us the good news of your faith and love and then so on and so forth. And he begins to continue his, his discussion there in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. So here they are faced with a recognition that God had been at work and they wanted to know what else was happening. So when Paul hears of the good things that are happening through Timothy, while he's in Athens, he's going to write them this letter. Sometimes when we send an email off to someone, we may or may not be fully aware of the context of what was going on when that email was sent. Sometimes we do. I got an email yesterday from my daughter who's working at a camp this summer. I know the context of where she's working. I understand what's going on there. And so when I read things about the difficulty of a hike, I can, I've been on that same hike and it is a terrible hike, right? It's hard. So I understand the context of it. So when we're reading these things in this letter, this is some of the background and the backdrop of what was going on at the time when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. What was the reason he even wrote it? They were facing difficulty. They had been literally run out on the rails. And so out of concern and encouragement to hear what God had been doing, he writes this letter to them. This is during the time of his second missionary journey. Shortly after the time he had written this letter, he was also continuing, obviously, to pray for them. This letter of thanksgiving that he wrote, that he wrote, as well as a letter of encouragement to the church in the midst of all the difficulty and suffering. So let's go forward one more slide here to take a look at some of the goals, right? This is a letter of thanksgiving of God's work. He's encouraged with their faithfulness in Christ. Really, this is going to be a pastoral letter of instruction, right? He's responding to the difficulty, and he's given some instructions to deal with the problems that they were facing. Now, as encouraged as he was, make no mistake, every church is full of sinners, a newsflash, even this one, right? Here's the difference. The church is full of sinners who repent, right? They respond properly to the truth of God's word. They respond, respond properly to the gospel of God. Um, there's no perfect people, right? Just Jesus, but how we respond to difficulty, how we respond to suffering reflects our relationship with Christ and that is then seen in our relationship with each other. So as encouraged as the Apostle Paul was in hearing this report from Timothy about the good things that were happening there, there were still difficulty, there were still struggles. But yet there was much to be encouraged by as well. There was definitely some needs that have resulted from the difficult situation, I'm sure as we, we could understand. The heart of thanksgiving was certainly present. But in order to meet the needs of the church to deal with some of the problems that had arisen, reminders that he was going to write of their life in Christ and 
who they were, we're going to see some of these things. Let's go forward another slide here, and we'll take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 1. Boy, that's the longest introduction to an introduction you've ever heard, right? 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Everything that I've been kind of unpacking here has to do with just these few opening phrases. What was going on at the time when this letter was written? Who were the, who were the people that he was writing to to explain all the different things that were happening at the church and the background and the foundation of it here? In 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 1, we've got a very simple statement about who the authors were, right? We're coming to you, and we're writing to the members of the church at Thessalonica, those who are identified with the church. This is the whole church, not some group of people. Hey, all those folks who sit on the upper right-hand side and left-hand side, and I'm saying that because that's where my son's sitting. That seems safe enough, right? You guys have real problems. I'm just saying. It's true. Yeah, he nods. He knows. It's because of his father, but that's a different story. He's not writing to a subset of the group. Hey, you know who you people are, right? That's not it at all. He's addressing the entire church, the entire group of believers who are gathered together there, right? To the church of the Thessalonians in God, this whole church there. The use of the word church for a body of believers had started to become a little more common in, in, in use now. This is the same word that could be used for an assembly of citizens, it's actually sometimes the same word that could be used for that mob of people. Whoops. So it needs some qualifiers to it, right? Who's this assembly, right? Who is this group of people? Societies, maybe, those who shared some kind of a common belief, but there are qualifiers to the church. What are the markers of this church? And frankly, what are the markers of any true church? Right? The text gives that for us here. There's these qualifying phrases that give character traits or restrict the nature of what the true church is. This is what distinguishes the assembly from others that would exist in the same town. There's something unique about this particular assembly or this church as an indicator of who whose authority they were under. I think it's important for us to note that there also is a recognition of people who were associated with or who were a part of that assembly in that city versus another city, right? It was all the people who were gathering there. It should remind us of a couple of things, and I don't want to make too strong of a deal about this, but... I think we need to make a strong deal about it. It's the importance of being identified with a church. I mean, when, when you write a letter to a group of people, you know who the people are who are in and who are out. Right? You know the people who are there and who are committed, who have uh, perhaps followed through with all of the commitments of what it means to be a member of a local church, and those who are just kind of on the periphery, right? Those who just kind of pop in and pop out. Those who want to kind of see what's going on. He's talking about those people who are integral to the life and existence of a local body of believers. 
This existence here is a visible expression of their relationship to the Father and to, the, and to Christ. And that's the qualifiers that are used here. In God the Father, the church in Thessalonica, that is in God the Father. Father shows the authority under which they met. You are not here for the purpose of just existing We're not a part of a church for any other reason except for the fact that we are in the Father. And I'm going to mention a little bit more about the gospel path here in just a few moments. All of us need to realize that we don't exist for our own self-perpetuation. We are but servants. Serving is what we do, and we are here to serve our Father. Not here to serve Dan, not here to serve Garrett, not here to serve anyone else, not here to serve the elders. I mean, I am, but I'm not. Because ultimately what I want to do is make sure that I'm ultimately pleasing God the Father. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. All of the things that we do exist for that purpose. And that's what the church is. It's in God the Father. This is the key relationship that they had with God. Secondly, it's not just God the Father, but it's also in Jesus Christ or in Christ Jesus. To the church in the Lord Jesus Christ, it acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is the one who has redeemed them. It recognizes him as Messiah, Christ, and Master, Lord. He is our Master and our Lord. That's who Christ is. It reminds the recipients of who they are. It shows their identity. It shows their place among the brethren and the way in which they should act toward one another. We are all fellow believers in Christ. When one understands their identity and their place in this world, it gives great confidence and it gives great hope. And when you are identified in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're also identified as a part of a local group of believers. When people come to Christ, they're not just out there by themselves. They are part of a new community of believers. And they really should be identified with a local assembly of believers. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, Jesus is giving a new command, a new instruction about the recognition that there's a new community of believers. Not one in which you just kind of do your own thing, but one in which you willingly and lovingly engage in accountability with one another for the purpose of spreading the gospel of God and expanding the glory of God. When he's writing to these believers who are gathered, to you, the assembly in Thessalonica, you know who you are because you are in God the Father, you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, where you have recognized that he is Master and Lord. And you're identified with him and with one another willingly as an assembly for this purpose. They're fellow followers of Christ. He ends this opening phrase here with grace and peace to you. 
this uh, phrase here, the apostles really had created a somewhat Christianized type greeting. We heard a lot, obviously, today, and I think that's great. Echoing really a common greeting at the time, it became a blessing expressing the essence of the gospel. Grace and peace to you. Grace here summarizes the saving work of God through Jesus Christ. This, this phrase here, grace and peace, embraces not only the gift of salvation, but also the continuous divine action that God continues to do through the work of his people for the fulfillment of his will. Grace. I need it this minute. <laughs> Some of you need it this minute to hang on until I'm finished with the sermon this morning, right? We all need God's grace. Not just to open our eyes to salvation, but that we would continue to believe. We need God's grace to give us the strength to do what we can't do on our own. We need God's grace to help us move forward. We need God's grace to be kind to one another. Ephesians 4 makes that rather clear. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Doing what? Ah, come on. Really? We got to forgive one another? Why? What's the basis or foundation for acting with one another this way? Because you have been forgiven in Christ. The minute we start to think that someone in the body of Christ or particularly those in our assembly are not worthy of our time or our forgiveness is the moment that we should call into question the very foundation and assurance of our salvation. This is no small opening statement here. To you, the believers who have identified as being a part of the church that gathers in Thessalonica, you are in God the Father. You are in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you all. Peace was the common greeting amongst the Jews. Very common today to even say shalom. This is the phrase that's very much used even to this day. It's not merely a desire for inner emotional tranquility, although it can mean that. It actually points to the core, ultimately, of the saving relationship between God and a people, group of people, or an individual person, right? Peace to you. Paul tells the Roman church that we have peace with God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We could say that the grace of God results in the peace of God. And that's exactly what we should understand this to be here. Ultimately, it's embracing the total reality of all the blessings and ultimately the desire that God has for the church. Grace and peace. So here we have the reality of what is going on at the time when Paul wrote this letter. He just heard this report of what was happening in Thessalonica. So he says to them, look, you believers who are gathered there, I know what your commitment is to God, to Christ, and to one another. May God's grace and his peace continue to dwell upon you. And there's a few more words I'd like to say throughout this entire letter. Let's go forward another slide here. 
all throughout the rest of chapter 1, which I'm going to read in just a moment here. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach the rest of chapter 1. I'm just going to read through it. We're going to start to see a further unpacking of some of these different things. Where the disciples who are gathered there thank God for evidences of grace and ultimately how God's grace changes disciples. So, this is uh, the two sermons that we're going to be looking at over the next two weeks. Next week, Lord willing, we'll take a look at chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, and then verses 6 through 10, the week after that. In this letter, though, he's going to be an extensive thanksgiving of all the different things that are happening here. If you would, turn to 1 Thessalonians 1 if you're not there. This may be the latest someone's ever asked you to turn <laughs> in your Bible somewhere, right? I'm just going to read 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 through 10. And as I'm reading through this, I'm going to ask you to pick a few things out here. The coming of the gospel to Thessalonica. Right? The character of the gospel messengers, the conversion of the Thessalonians we're going to see here, the sufferings that they and the apostles endured. You're going to see some of these little terse statements here. Verse number eight in particular, we're going to see the mission of the church. We're going to see a future hope that they can be encouraged by. All of these different themes, as one commentator put it, I think helpfully, all of these themes throughout the first chapter are really going to be unpacked throughout the rest of the letter, right? We're going to see more of these things as we, as we kind of go along throughout the entire letter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse number 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake? And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word of much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivered us from the wrath to come. Let's take a look at the last slide here because what I want us to really be thinking about are what are some healthy church practices? This is a phrase that's used in a lot of different books and materials today. And I think it is helpful for us to recognize some of the characteristics of different ways that a church can represent it being healthy. And what I mean by that is simply... Is it following through with what God intends for the church to accomplish with one another, with the community, with sharing the gospel with others? So the characteristics we'll see, recognizing her struggles, recognizing the constant need of reminders for those who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, these people had much to be encouraged about. They had pressed on through difficulty. That they continued because of the work of grace that God had done in their hearts. When we think about, and when you think about, the identity and mission of Redemption Bible Church, and I know Garrett and the elders and others will be going through this in new members classes as you guys work toward that. Obviously, the church is formed when God redeems us. 
That's when the church begins, when God begins his work of redemption. You may be here this morning and wondering, what is going on here? What, why, do, why do I need to be redeemed? What's happening? Five quick points for us to think about here. This is the reality. God created everyone and everything, Genesis chapter 1. God's sovereign, God's holy. God created everything good. Sadly, man chose to, chose to disobey God, number two, and he fell into sin. And because man fell into sin, he is unable to be with God forever. But God, who loves all of his creation so much, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us. God loves each and every one and sent his son, Christ, to die for those whom he would redeem. Fourth, there's repentance. Man's responsible for all his own choices, and very simply, he must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Finally, we have a future hope, knowing that Christ is going to return. It's basically what we're seeing here all throughout the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. A recognition of who God our Father is, the one who created us. The fact that we have struggled with sin and fallen into sin, and we need Christ to redeem us. We have a future hope that he is going to return Therefore, we recognize that the local church consists of true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are sharing a common doctrine, sharing a common teaching, sharing that truth with others. This is a group of believers, not a political party. This is a group of believers, not people who are furthering their own agenda for their own goals. This is a group of people at the church and following exactly what the church commitments are, which you can even read on the website there. What makes Redemption Bible Church healthy when they're living out the mission of the church to exalt God, exalt, equip believers, and evangelize those who have not yet turned to Christ. I love, I love the three simple things, exalting, equipping, and evangelizing. I think it's a fantastic way for each of us to keep in mind what we're doing and God willing, that's the same truths we'll see as we take a look through the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Let's pray this morning. God, we thank you so much for these truths from your word. God, I pray that you would help us to communicate grace and peace to others, that we might be thankful for the work that you have done in our hearts, and that we would share that truth with others. God, we are in such need of having you do a work. We can't do this on our own. We can't do it in our own strength. And God, I pray that you would help us to trust you, knowing that you are the one who is in control of all things. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.